Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Nir Barzilai. Nir is the founding director of the Institute for Aging Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. He discovered the first longevity gene in humans and pioneered research around key mechanisms in the biology of aging. He's also the author of Age Later, which is an amazing book that I highly recommend and I love. Nir, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you very much. And listen, thank you for your leadership and for the dialogues, no pun intended, but <laughs> dialogues that we had during the years. And I enjoy listening to your podcast. Thank you for oh, that. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being here. Now, a lot of your work revolves around studying centenarians, people who make it to 100. Why are you so excited to study longevity? 100,000 years of human evolution. And by the way, people argue how many years, but 100,000 years. Life expectancy was between 20 and 30. Okay. It's only in the last 150 years that we did some prevention. We kind of harnessed the agriculture, cleaned the water, built sewers, immunization, that all of a sudden we tripled our lifespan. It's 76 in the United States, unfortunately dropping, but it's like 18 in the rest of the progressive world now. But it came with a price and the price was that after the age of 60, we start to accumulate all those diseases that we ate. Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease. And so we need to have a new history. Okay, that's what we're trying to create, a new history. And we're creating the new history for two reasons. I should say three. First of all, aging is biology, but I think everybody knows, you know who's young and who's old, but that this biology drives diseases. It's this biology of aging that makes you sick. You can be born with genes for Alzheimer's, and you're not demented when you're born or when you're one year or 10 or 20. It takes the aging to get this disease out. So aging drives this disease. And second or last, if you interfere in this biology, in this aging process, then you prevent not one disease or two diseases, you prevent all the diseases that are accumulated with aging. And that's something that we went from hope to promise, and now we're realizing this promise. You know, obviously, we did a lot of things to make it better for the first 50 years. The chance of dying in the first 50 years has gone down dramatically over the last, let's say, 200 years or so of life. But five out of the first six presidents of the United States lived past 80. Only George Washington, I think, died before then. We have a history, a long history of people living fairly long time who are already vigorous, who are already relatively healthy. Are we actually making progress, let's say, past 65 today? Yes, and that's true. I should say the fact that I said life expectancy was between 20 and 30, I should have said there were always old people, <laughs> successful old people throughout the history, at least the last, let's say, 1,000 years or 2,000 years. It's in the Bible, if you believe those ages. So yes, they were successful people, and that's why we're looking at centenarians. Look, I started this study in 1998. So centenarian was born in 1888 when I started this study. Life expectancy for somebody that was born in 1888 in the United States was about 40. If they got to the age of 40, it became 60. But basically, our centenarians have doubled the life expectancy of their cohort. That's why they're so special. And at that time, it was estimated that one out of 10,000 is a centenarian. So it's a very rare, you can look at it from a genetic perspective as a disease or a risk. Let's not call it a disease, but a risk. And that's why we're interested in those people who doubled their life expectancy in very bad environment, <laughs> survived many hardships, and how is it that they got here? One out of 10,000 is pretty rare. In some ways, you're slightly more likely to be a centenarian than to be a billionaire or something like that in the United States. What have you found is different about these people from the general population? The most important thing that was crucial for us to demonstrate 
is that they didn't get sick when everybody got sick and they were sick longer. We needed to show or we asked, is their lifespan or health span goes together? Otherwise, we can stop the study right there. And the answer was yes. As I said, they doubled the life expectancy of their cohort. They live 20, 30 years healthier than people without longevity. Okay, so they didn't live only long. They lived healthy. Yeah, so when they were 80, they were acting like a 65-year-old or something type of thing? or That too, but I'll get to that. But not only did they live healthier, they had what we call a contraction of morbidity. They were sick very little time at the end of their life. So before they died, they just died. It's not like they spent like five years being sick or something like right. that. 30% of our centenarians don't have any disease and they don't wake up one morning. They just died. They just died. The CDC, everybody knows what's the CDC. The CDC have followed the medical cost in the last two years of life of somebody who dies after the age of 100, and the medical costs are third of those who dies in their 70s. Interesting. So there's what we call a longevity dividend. Is that just because if you're going to die in your 70s, it's probably is of some sort of complicated thing, like some sort of cancer thing or some sort of protracted stroke or something where at some point, if you're just too old, things are just not going to work. And that's when someone over 100 is just going to die because they've already had their chance to get some protracted cancer and they missed it. We didn't talk about it before, but I'm not going to repeat what you said. You just said it perfectly. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Then what else is different about these people? Okay. So then the question is, okay, but maybe they, one out of 10,000, have done something with the environment that we know now what we should do, exercise and diet and sleep and things. Maybe they've done that. And that's why they are so rare. And the answer is that 60% of the men and 30% of the women were heavy smokers. Which was common at the time. In fact, it was as common as in their cohort. I have a woman who died when she was 110. I met her in New York when she was 100 years old. She opened the door for me and she was smoking. And I said, Helen, Nobody told you to stop smoking. And she said, you know, the four doctors that told me to stop smoking, they died. <laughs> so one lesson is if you smoke for 90 years, you live a long life. But really, the lesson is that it didn't matter to them. By the way, this was one of the, to me, the depressing thing when I read your book is I was like, I'm looking for the answer. Oh, do this, eat this thing or whatever. That You have all these people living past 100 who are like heavy smokers, who are sometimes they're a little bit out of shape. And was like, oh man, what can I do for myself to live past 100? Jay Leno, when we published this paper, Jay Leno made this comment. He said, okay, the secret for long life, you should smoke, be obese. <laughs> and if you don't, who cares? <laughs> of course, this is only for them, okay? That's right, because they're special it's people. Rest, right? It's not for us, right? I remember giving an interview in a television, getting out, to Starbucks, there was a guy who said, I saw you on the TV and you changed my life. I said, how come? He said, I saw it in the gym, but my grandmother is 100 years old. I don't need to exercise it. <laughs> but it's the opposite. You know, imagine Helen died at 110 smoking. Maybe she could have lived to 150. We don't know. She didn't smoke. So for all of us, you have to assume that exercise, diet, sleep, and <laughs> loneliness is really what you should fight. For them, and it was important for us to show that that's not the environment. And by the way, we have many other papers that prove that. So we are looking not only at centenarians, we're looking at their children. The people who are married to their children, so they're sharing the environment. And in fact, they're equal in everything. If you look at their weight and their food intake and their nutrients, they're equal. But those who are children of centenarians live on average 10 years longer. And they have Amazing. half of the cardiovascular disease, they have half of the cognitive decline, half of the mortality. And even when we do the biology and we look at biomarkers, they're 10 years younger. So they're basically, I mean, what you're saying is it's luck. You're born that way and 
if you're going to live past 100, there's a lot of luck that comes with it. Well, I change what you said. I just change. If you're 100, I cannot help you. You're it. <laughs> Those who are not, we can design drugs and imitate them and make them get to you. Yeah. So the idea is figure out there's some sort of genetic lottery that these people over 100 have won. Let's figure that out and then let's maybe try to replicate that in the rest of us, the other 9,999 people out of 10,000 and help us get to over 100. Exactly. And I talked about the environment, but even genetically, it's really interesting. So we think their aging has slowed and we find a lot of genes that are predictive of diseases. So I gave the example before of Alzheimer and the ApoE4 gene. We have centenarians who have ApoE4 genes, are homozygous for that. They just don't get turned on or something. There's some epigenetic thing. Or... What we think is that their aging is so slow that it just doesn't come. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So they can harbor lots of bad genes, but their aging is slow. So who cares? Got it. So it's like, a few good genes could trump the bad genes. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. And first of all, have we identified some of these genes? And then is there a way to like bottle them up and inject them with CRISPR or have them infect our body? Or like, what can we do to get these things? We have to all appreciate the fact that the fact that we find the genes, we found the mechanism. It doesn't mean it usually or I should say almost always doesn't mean that you need to do CRISPR. You develop a drug acts on this gene. Of the people who live past 100, is it like all of them have at least some of these genes or something? No. So that's the second point. Remember 50 ways to live your lover? Yeah. Paul, Simon, there are several genes that are longevity genes. So you can have one of those genes that affects your longevity. And what we are trying to do is actually identifying all of them. And we have this project that's called Super Agers uh, Initiative in the American Federation of Aging Research. If you know, or if the listeners know, somebody over the age of 95, we register them on the web, we send them a test so they can spit and we can look for all the longevity genes that we have. But saying that, I'll give an example. The most common genetic alteration that we find in centenarians, in 60% of the centenarians, is alteration in the function of growth hormones. There is one hormone that's called growth hormone, but there are many growth hormones. And this is interesting because in nature, we see it. For example, the big dogs live shorter than the small dogs. And the ponies live longer than the thoroughbred. And anytime we manipulate or something happened by accident and we have dwarf versus others, the dwarf live longer. But is that true? Do tall men live shorter than short men? There is evidence for that. Because I know the women live longer than men and women on average shorter than men, but does a 6'4 man on average live shorter than a 5'8 man? So many papers will show that it's interesting that one of our genes that are in 12% of our centenarians is in the growth hormone receptor. It's actually a deletion of a whole exome in the growth hormone receptor. But something weird happens that when they go through puberty and there are lots of growth hormone, this mutation that makes the growth hormone receptor inactive actually activates it super and they get taller after puberty. But then when the growth hormone goes down, it shuts off and then they can get to 100. <laughs> Interesting. So, okay. What I'm saying, we have to our so, surprise- This is super complicated. As a science paper, if you're asking me, can tall people live longer? Yeah, actually by the same mechanism- Paul Bolker is pretty tall. He seems like to be going for a long time. Right. So epidemiological- the answer is yes. Look, it's difficult with humans because they're still in a lot of the world. Tall people had advantages in business, in leadership, and then their health were terrific. But there's a lot of evidence that suggests that middle is not important, but short is actually really good. But let me explain why. Because growth hormone 
is actually really good for you from an evolutionary perspective. The more growth hormone you have, the more growth you have, the more successful you would be. But then you get to an age and you start to have breakdown. And all your energy now, if you have high growth hormone, goes to growth. And that's a mistake. You want to shift it. Okay, you want to take the energy out of growth. It doesn't make sense. If you want to protect yourself against aging. So there is antagonistic pleiotrophy. People talk about even small things to do to help with clamping down inflammation and other types of things. Are those somewhat related? Yes, they're all related. In fact, we have what we call hallmarks of aging. In order to be a hallmark of aging, you have to show that it deteriorates with aging. And if you fix it, your animals will live healthier and longer. But the cool thing is all those hallmarks are interacting in the sense that you don't have to fix all of them together. You can fix one and affect the others. So the answer is yes. If you have less growth hormone, you have less inflammation. Both of them are hallmarks of aging. So yes, it's interactive. You don't have to do everything. Although we want to develop drugs for everything because on individuals, it's going to matter, but you don't have to do in everything in order to get healthier. So you said 60% of people over 100 have less growth hormone inhibitors or less growth hormones, et cetera. I assume also a lot of people who die at 65 also have growth hormone inhibitors too. How predictive is it? That's a good question. And we really don't have a predictive value as long as we don't do bigger studies. I could just tell you this. How do we prove the concept? I should say, look, we've done a mistake. We usually discovered something in cells and tried to see how it is in mice. And we said, okay, now we'll develop drugs and go to humans. Two thirds of the drugs that were approved by FDA last year were based on genetic finding. Because if there's genetic finding and this happens in human, then it would be a better drug than what you think mice have been. There are also lots of other problems with mice. Most of age-related disease that were studied in mice were studied in young mice, ignoring the template that there's biology of aging. It's a totally different biology. So what we do when we do the finding, then we go to animals. Okay, so the question is, we found that growth hormones our lower growth hormone action is really good. How do we prove it in animals? So there was a pharmaceuticals developed what's called an IGF receptor antibody, some things that antagonize the growth hormone. And then we gave it to all the animal and those animals became healthier and lived longer. So we do it this way. But what is their effect in humans is going to go through biotech, through phase one, phase two, and eventually phase three trial to show how it's going. How do you do a trial with anti-aging since the outcomes could be like 40 years later or something like that? Is it just because you're trying to say, okay, this thing will then inhibit this. And we know that if you inhibit this, it likely leads to people living longer. It does seem like it's harder. Whereas like cancer drug is like, oh, it goes into remission. It seems like it's much easier to test. It's a little bit easier, but I should say that I'm leading a study like that. I'm leading a study like that with a common drug that's called metformin that is used for diabetes, but actually it was adopted for diabetes. It was used for the hallmarks of aging. People took it in the 1920s and 50s to prevent flu and malaria and arthritis and other things. This is, we call it a gerotherapeutic. You call it anti-aging. We are geroscientists and we want to develop gerotherapeutics. This is a classical gerotherapeutics that attacks all the hallmarks of aging. This is what we're doing. We went to the FDA and said, this is a drug that was in use for 80 years, billions of years of use, very safe. We know everything that we know about it. And we're going to package it to prove to you that aging can be targeted and age-related disease can be prevented. We sat with the FDA, they had some comments, but eventually they agreed that if we show these outcomes in a study, then there'll be an indication to that because this is the most important thing that if the FDA doesn't approve an indication, healthcare providers don't have to pay you. And if healthcare providers don't pay you, the pharmaceuticals 
are not going to jump in and develop more drugs, better drugs, combination of drugs. So the rate limiting for us is the FDA recognizing that aging can be targeted and aging therefore can be delayed or reverse or stopped. These studies are phase one, phase two, phase These are really expensive studies and metformin is generic, I presume, right? It's been around forever. And so if you get it approved, it's not like any pharmaceutical company can make any real money off of it. So how do you fund that study? Does it seem like there's hard economic, do you need the government to fund it or something? Or Oh God, this is my painful life. Since we started the study and started with the FDA, we had lots of events that delayed our study. We still haven't started the study, although we're making progress, we have third the money, but it starts by the fact that there are the National Institutes of Health, which actually are all institutes for diseases. The National Cancer Institute, the National Heart Institute, okay, the only Institute of Health is the, age, the Institute for Aging, the National Institute for Aging. But those are silos. And we don't necessarily know about each other project, and each silo is also defending. When we go to this institute and said, if we target aging, we'll prevent diabetes or cardiovascular disease or cancer, they're like, just a minute, but we'll still have people with cancer, so don't take money from us. And that's the pool. And in fact, our problem is that our reviewers for a project like that, it's a big project, where people from cancer, from heart, from other things that never heard that aging can be targeted because you don't need to read the things that are not in your area. And the summary statement was those people investigators think that aging can be targeted and one drug can do it. They're crazy. But actually, we brought them all the evidence that metformin, when I talk about metformin, all the studies have been done, but against specific disease. It prevents diabetes, it prevents cardiovascular disease, it prevents cancer, it prevents mortality. By the way, we don't have to do 40 years. We can in five years see if there's difference in mortality. Those studies has been done. We try to package them together in an elderly population so that we can call it aging. I have a lot of geeky tech-related friends who want to increase their longevity. And I would say of those friends, for the ones who are, say, over 60 an extremely high percentage of them are using metformin, at least some sort of low dose of metformin. But I don't think like that many of the people, let's say who are under 40 are using it. It probably doesn't make sense to give it to like a teenager or something. Is there a point where you think it does start to make sense for someone to start using? Absolutely. And it really worries me that 40-year-old will use metformin. Remember I told you this antagonistic plotrophy, actually, let's take this example, growth hormone is good for you when you're young and bad for you when you're old. Metformin actually decreases one of the growth hormones. So if you're less than age of 50, I would say, it's not good for you to have less growth hormone. Your muscle wouldn't be developed as well. So there is an age for metformin and all the studies- Oh, so if you're taking metformin, it's harder to get muscle, essentially? Yes. Okay, got it. Because we have seen a lot of studies that if you have lower muscle mass, you might be more access to injury. When you get older, you fall and break your hip and those types of things. Right. So metformin is not good for bodybuilders. It's not good when you're young. And most of the studies have started recruited patients over the age of 50. Actually, the average age of the patients was usually in their 60s. So yes, there is an age. And also, I should say about low dose, I don't know that low dose works. In fact, when we designed the studies, some said, they're elderly, let's give them less. And others said, are you kidding? It's for aging, we should give them more. And we decided to give 1,500 milligrams, I'm just throwing the number, 1,500 milligrams a day, because the studies that we have were on 1,500 milligrams a day. And we don't know that that's going to be the best dose, but we know that this dose works. Interesting. And a lot of people that I know that use metformin have also been looking into other things like rapamycin. And what are your thoughts at some of these other things like rapamycin? I can tell you what I'm doing. One of the things I'm doing is I'm on metformin, but I'm doing something with nutrition too. And that's public. I want to tell you though, I decided to say that I'm trying other things. I have my own longevity doctor. You're saying for your personally, you're trying different things. Personally for me. And 
I'm trying few things, but I'm doing it where I'm measuring things before and after. I'm trying to sing and to challenge myself and to see that it's okay. I'm doing that because I'm in this field for 30 years and all of a sudden I'm getting old. So I'm trying to find out what works. And I'm not encouraging everyone because there's a lot of challenges. Rapamycin is in human use. It's in human use as an immune modulator after transplant. So in high dose, rapamycin is an immune suppressor. And in low dose, it's an immune modulator or immune enhancer. Why would it be an immune suppressor in high dose and an immune increaser in low dose? Because it targets a certain nutrient sensing that's called mTOR. And there's difference between inhibiting it totally or just decreasing the dose from a biological perspective. And it was worked out really well for immunology, really, where you could see that the lower dose will enhance everything and the higher dose will suppress everything. It's just part of the biology. Every drug has a trade-off. And if you take drugs too little or too much, some people can get into trouble. So it's kind of the same, but I'm more saying be careful. What are some of the other known side effects of metformin? I've heard people have issues with digestion or other types of things. Are there other kind of known side effects with metformin? The biggest side effect of metformin is longevity. (laughs) You have less chances of dying. Is there a scenario where, let's say, in some ways, metformin makes you skinnier in a way? Is there a point where you're already pretty skinny and maybe it doesn't work that well with you and you should be doing other things or could it work better in some people than others? Or I'll tell you, most of the side effects of metformin appears in the first week. And if you actually start low dose of metformin with food and increase it every day, you might not have any side effect. Most people don't know that they're in metformin. They notice that they lost some weight, but they don't know it. But three to 6% have diarrhea and diarrhea that persists after this week. Those people usually have deficiency in the transport that takes metformin into the cells. And they actually have diarrhea because metformin doesn't absorb from their guts into the body. So they're not going to benefit from metformin anyhow, and they should stop it. That's the major. So metformin, for example, lowers testosterone in some people. I said it lowers IGF, but those things are not side effects that somebody would necessarily feel. And it happens more in young people than in old people or more clinically significant in young people than old people. So I think for old people, it's safe, tolerable, and beside the side effect that will happen in one week or persist, and then you're just out, that's all there is. There's been a lot of chatter about all these new weight loss drugs. Like, I take a pill and all of a sudden I got skinny. What do you think about some of these new drugs on the market? When I started this biology of aging, the model that we have and a model that stayed as a control is the caloric restriction animal. We took animals, brothers, two groups, one group ate whatever they wanted and the other, we figured out how much and gave them 60% of that. They were leaner, they were healthier for much longer and they lived almost 40% longer. It really wasn't only about leanness and in fact, People took it to say, hey, you should have less for breakfast, less for lunch, less for dinner. But that's not what we did with those animals. We gave them the food in the morning when we came. They were hungry. They finished the whole food. We don't feed them three times a day, okay? We give them the food. They finish the food. And now they're fasting for 23 hours. In fact, when we give them food throughout the day, they're leaner but they don't live longer. So you need the fasting also in order to get what you need for longevity from an aging perspective. And that's why so many people talk about these like intermittent fasting type of things. Are you a big believer in that as well? Yeah, I'm practicing intermittent fasting BC before COVID, I think five (laughs) years. And it's very easy. It's somewhat addictive because you feel so good. And it improves lots of my function, definitely. I mean, I feel much better. Uh, My exercise capacity has increased. 
I don't get sleepy in the middle of the day, things like that. And are you doing like a typical eight hours of eating, 16 hours off, or are you doing more like three hours of eating and 21 hours off or something? No, I would say two things. I'm finishing food. Yesterday, I finished food at eight, which means until noontime, I'm not going to eat. I actually have Zoom at noontime. If I'm 16 hours, I can go longer. I do that every day. So skip breakfast, essentially. Skip breakfast, but not have anything. Not after dinner, no cheating. A little candy is going to increase your insulin. It's going to basically stop the benefits. So no cheating. I have coffee without milk and sugar. And I have water. It's easy because if I had diet for three months, I could break any day. But I'm not going to break if I have another hour. Not only that, after that hour, I can eat whatever I want. Now, the second thing I'm doing is I'm trying, not always successful, but I'm trying to decrease the carbohydrates. I'm not having desserts. Desserts is a treat for me. I'll have right, it. So fewer cookies and those types of things. Right. So I'm having something for lunch, usually some vegetables or sandwich sometimes. And then I have dinner, regular dinner without dessert. That would be the typical thing that I'm doing. It's very easy. And after a while, I love breakfast. So I do sometimes breakfast for dinner. <laughs> That's all. Do you think there's some sort of evolutionary disadvantage of expanding lifespans? One exchange for longevity is decreased reproduction. That's also in nature. You have some animals that are bisexual. They have both male and female organs. And you can take out any one of them and they live longer. Our centenarians have less children than people who are not centenarians. Interesting. Do like nuns on average live longer than women? Actually, they do. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's complex because they live also in an environment. Yeah. And they've got a lot of support and community. and Exactly. But nuns are known to live longer. In fact, out of every 100 centenarians, 85 are women, but half of them have no kids. That's interesting. So there's now in my study, by the way, everybody have kids because in order to come to my study, you have to have an offspring because we're studying the offspring. I had heard, and I could be wrong, but I heard on average that people of the Mormon faith live on average longer. Now that could just be they have less alcohol or they just live healthier lives, but they, of course, on average have way more kids than the average American. Is there any relationship there? Or maybe they have community or they have other things that are helping them? It was studied in the Amish that are kind of similar. And the more kids they have, the longer they live. Both male and females, the more kids they have until 13. Like if you had your 14 kid, that's killing you, really. <laughs> but those are not people with exceptional longevity. Those are okay. rich people. So it's just like they got from 65 to 75 or something right. or whatever. So it's social. I think the more kids care for them, the better they are. Somebody's catching something. Somebody's bringing them something. Somebody includes them in their dinner parties, things like that. So there's a lot of social in here. Now, really, the problem in the United States, all over the world, in every city, the rich and the poor, the poor live 20 to 30 years less than the rich. It's crazy. It's crazy. And there's multi-factors there. But if you ask me, who needs metformin most are the poor people. And we can afford it. Because it's super cheap. I had read some sort of stat, which might be hypocritical, that if we cured all cancer, it would only increase lifespan by like three years or something like that. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, less. Because again, unless you target aging, you're just going to exchange one disease for another. If you're not going to be cancer, that means you're living more life and then you'll get Alzheimer <laughs> or cardiovascular disease. What you said is another way to what I said initially, that aging drives diseases. You don't correct the aging, aging will continue and we'll get the, your next disease because we're accumulating disease after disease, treatment after treatment. That's where we are stuck and that's what we're trying to change. That's the new history I'm talking about. I also read David Sinclair's book, Lifespan, and he talks about a lot of the same things, but also a lot of different things like saunas, cold showers. You mentioned fasting. Have you looked at any of those types of things? No, that's really not my role in life. I'm a biologist. What I've done is I'm a very important official in several organizations that are part of the WAVE. I'm the scientific director of the American Federation for Aging Research that drives 
we're not done with aging. We discovered a lot, but we're not done. We're even not discovered the major things Could that we're in not. just inning one right now. Right. The second thing is I'm one of the executive of the Longevity Biotech Association. There are $40 billion investment in longevity. And we have special needs in the sense that the runway has to be longer, but also there are going to be exits because each one of those hallmarks where we're developing drugs to can also be a treatment for a specific disease. So we have to find the diseases that allows us to make the money to get to the aging and also to educate. I'm there in this association mainly to educate investors and ask them, what do you want to do? Which hallmarks? If this is the hallmark, I'll tell you who are the scientists that are leading. I'm also on the board of a new academy. It's the Academy for Health and Lifespan Research. And I think most exciting this year, I'm on the executive of a new medicine society, medical society. It's called the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society that starts to actually train longevity doctors. There are things that we know. That would be great because there's very few of those today. And by the way, you ask what we can do. Well, we can give metformin. We can try rapamycin. There's lots of things, but it's about maximizing your health because look, maybe your blood pressure is 120 over 80, which is good, but we know that 110 over 70 is better. Maybe your LDL is 100, it's fine, but 70 is better. <laughs> maybe you walk 10,000 steps a day, but 13,000 is better. So there's a lot of things that we can maximize your health when you're younger in order to delay your aging as much as possible. The HDL stuff was also in your book as well, and it did seem like there was some sort of high correlation, though unclear if that was genetic or there could be, if I increase my HDL, would it help me, you think? It's a problem. Actually, because of my study, Mercus has developed an inhibitor to the gene that we found that is in higher percentage in our centenarians. But it's complex in the sense that they didn't have only high HDL, they have large particles of HDL. They didn't have large particle of HDL, they had also large particle of LDL cholesterol. So we don't know what is really the most important and maybe not every high HDL is protected. But I'll tell you that if you have longevity in your family and you have high HDL, I think that's very predictive for you having longevity. My friend, Brian Johnson, who will be on the World Death podcast soon, he's spending millions of dollars a year to reverse his aging. If money was non-object for someone like him, who's got hundreds of millions of dollars, what could one do differently? The Academy of Healthspan and Lifespan Research met a couple of weeks ago, and Brian Johnson asked to attend. He actually asked to give a lecture, but- He's not a scientist. Not in the Academy, but we organized a panel for him he said, but I'd like to learn from the scientists. And so he presented several challenges. And we had a panel of some longevity doctors, David Sinclair also. And I'll tell you what I think. I'll take one example because he's talking about it. I'm not saying anything that he didn't hear, but he's taking 105 supplements. So we know already from longevity medicine, we know about few cases that had took 30 supplements and their biological age has actually increased because we don't know the interaction between supplement. So it could be if you take supplement A, it could help, supplement B could help, but supplement A plus B could hurt. Exactly. And when you have 105, they start combining with each other. Even two can cancel. Driving fewer might be better there. It's like, okay, you know, a little bit of vitamin D if you're deficient could be helpful or something. Right. Another thing, look, he has 3 to 4% fat. I would say it like that. I told you about this caloric restriction thing, that you caloric restrict, then you live longer. But when you don't give any food to the animals, they'll die in three days. They won't live longer. How much is really good? And I don't know that 3 4% fat is good because actually subcutaneous fat has important hormones, like a deponectin that is secreted. You don't want to be obese, but you might not want to be real thin either or something. Exactly. So I think, look, 
I think it's incredible. It's also, you have to be really obsessive to do what he does because yes, he's monitoring a lot. It's a full-time job. It's a totally full-time job and he'll learn a lot. And I hope we learned a lot, but it's an equal one. And it's possible that he will be terrific and everybody else will die. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Interesting. What are some other non-obvious habits? I would say most of our listeners would say between the age of 30 and 45, they're probably generally healthy people. And so maybe this is a good time to start a good habit or something. What are some maybe non-obvious habits that they should be starting beyond like sleep, diet, exercise, maybe fasting, et cetera? I want to actually talk about sleep because I think this is a problem. Old people sometimes cannot sleep, but young people are not going to sleep many times, okay? They're staying up because they're watching TV, because they're at the bar or something else. It's hard with Netflix. Right. But I think you have basically at any age, you have to be in bed for eight hours. I mean, I'm eight hours in bed. I don't sleep for eight hours. I sleep for six hours and 40 minutes on average. Just because when you're older, it's harder. Yeah. But I wouldn't sleep six hours and 40 minutes if it wouldn't be a dark room without lights, without telephone, <laughs> without those things because sleep can really get to you. I think old people are trying to sleep more. Young people are not trying to sleep more. They're trying to sleep less. So nowadays, like when I meet any health conscious person who's 35 or something, like the first thing they'll talk about is sleep. It hit the zeitgeist at some point. I'm happy to hear. I hope so. And then the exercise, the question with the exercise is what kind of exercise? And I think the answer is you should do everything probably, but look, what do you do when you're young? What are you doing when you're old and which effect health span and longevity is not totally figured out yet? Now, one of the things I appreciate about you, which maybe our audience hasn't totally appreciated yet, is that you're extremely funny. Every time we've hung out, I've been hysterically laughing. Do you think humor is helpful to live longer? Obviously, it's helpful for life and just to enjoy life better, but is there any study where some sort of humor is better for living longer? Let's put it this way. I don't get along with people who have no sense of humor. I definitely need it. I'll provoke. But let me tell you a story because it's not only about humor. It's about personality. It's about being extrovert, optimistic. And this is what I've learned. And it's an interesting story. I don't see all my sentinels, but sometimes people say, you have to see this guy is amazing or this woman. I'm going to see this guy. He's 104 years old. And I'm telling you, he's the nicest guy I ever met. He's very thoughtful. He's very appreciative. He has no complaints against his daughter-in-laws and things. And, you know, he talks about life. It was just a terrific conversation. So I leave him and I'm going through his apartment to get out and I bump into his son. Okay, his son is in his 80s. So I'm telling his son what I just told you. Your father is like the nicest guy <laughs> So he looks at me straight in my eyes and he said, you should have seen the son of a bitch when he was my age. He was a terrible, terrible person. <laughs> and then you realize. There's a little bias as they get older. Because when we say personality doesn't change, it's studies that look at people about when they were 60. But now we're talking about people that are retired, their spouse died, they went from one house to a smaller house, then they get into an aging home, and their brain is aging too. And so that's why we have the offspring of centenaires, because we want to see really what personality has to do with their longevity, because it might change. By the way, there is a study out of UPenn where they took young and old people and showed them slides, good slides and bad slides. Good slides were islands in Hawaii, bad slides were pizza with cockroaches the young and old people had to recall. The young people recalled more of both groups and the old people recalled less, but mainly of the good things. Okay, so something in our brain allows us to just shove the bad things and remember the good things. Which is probably good for evolution. You kind of forget the bad stuff or forget that fight you had with your spouse or something like that. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> but that explains maybe also why the personality becomes better because you're just not doing these bad things anymore. And I do think people's personality changes quite dramatically. I don't know if you agree, but even between ages of 30 and 40 or 
I would say once a decade, I mean, people change. They go from extrovert to introvert. They change quite a bit. Sometimes I think the people around them don't let them change because they remember them from 20 years ago and it's hard. But if you move to a new environment or something, you're much more likely to change your personality. At least that's my perspective. I cannot argue with it. I think that's what we're seeing exactly. Could you see a scenario where countries make an investment in their populations to help them live longer? Because you can imagine that not necessarily beneficial for a country to have a much larger aging population and stuff like that. So could you see them doing it? And then on the second side, like, is that actually a good thing for them? Let's take China as an example. China is really a good example because for decades, a couple could have only one child. So they have a huge percentage of the elderly with one child who's probably not around there, could be out of China or in another city, something like that. And so who's going to take care of the elderly? They're really pushing aging research or trying to do that. They want people to work longer then instead of retiring at 60 or 65, maybe you retire at 70, 75. Absolutely. So there are two solutions. One is die already. Okay. But dying is expensive. The other solution is to make those people healthier so they can take care of themselves for longer and they can have health, health and contraction of morbidity. And that's what we're offering. That also means that in parallel, there have to be changes. Elderly have to retire and volunteer or find other jobs. Social security has to change. Retirement age has to change. I think there's a lot of things that will happen once we have the tools to extend health span. Is there any research that shows that retiring later is better for health? No, I think it's more complex. Look, my wife is a corporate lawyer. She's 63 years old, and she really wants to retire because life is tough as a lawyer. The clients want things over the weekend. They stay at night. It's a tough job. I'm a scientist. I can stop the day anytime. Every day is interesting for me. We don't retire. So it really depends a lot on what you're doing and what led you. By the way, doctors who are seeing patients every day, they are done at 60. They are so burned out. So I think it's more your profession. But it doesn't mean you, even if you're a surgeon, obviously surgeon is physically very taxing. Maybe you want to stop being a surgeon 60, 65, but you could still do something else. There's probably a exactly. hundred other things. Your wife is an extremely smart person. She could do another thing. She don't have to 100% retire. You can go to another or second career. Do you see that for people who are like, flat out retiring, I'm going to be playing pickleball to, okay, I'm going to actually have another career type of thing. Is there any relationship between how long people live? First of all, all the above happens. It's like with medicine. It's personalized. People it's are fighting with yeah. you. I don't know that there are rules for that, but everything you said, let me give you though two examples. There's an effort in the United States to get retired people to problematic schools and have them tutor. I wouldn't say even tutor. They have to be buddies of somebody who has difficulties. So they go to those schools and they talk with those guys. They have no agenda for them. So they can be good with them. They take them out for dinner. They have a problem it's with like math. like a friendly grandparent have, in a way. Like a grandparent. And this has made huge differences where this was incorporated. This was just a trial, but it was a successful trial. So sorry, you're saying it obviously would make a huge difference in the youth's life, but you're also saying it makes a big difference in the retired person's life? Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Because they have a purpose and they enjoy it. And guys will teach them pickleball or something, go with them to sports. It's both ways. The other example, and there are beautiful movies around the world. It's called 80 over 40. You take 80 years old in old age home and you bring four years old. And basically what happens when you do it, the 80 years old are improved in everything. They have all of a sudden purpose of life. They're moving more. Their depression scale is decreasing. Their activity is increasing. The four years old are learning basically empathy. And their parents are saying that because they know now they start by let's run there. And elderly says, I cannot run. I'm in all their hands. Or I can't hear you. Or I'm giving you two examples. Well, this would make some case for some sort of more multi-generational. Like right now, 
at least in the United States, it's very not multi-generational. And a lot of times you'll live in a community of a older 65 community or something like that as you get older that explicitly forbids kids for more than a few days or something. But you're saying maybe it makes much more sense to have grandparents in the home, et cetera. Correct. But by the way, the grandparents don't have to be at their home. They can be at our homes. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Interesting. All right. This has been amazing. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? When I give advice, and it happens a lot to young people, I start like that. I said, I'll tell you what I would do so that we can take it off the table and see what you can do. Because the truth about advice, that it's again, very personalized. So I'll tell you for me, the worst advice, I came from Israel when I was in my 30s. I'd never heard it in Israel, but I heard it here. Don't go against the wind. Don't go against the grain, like the biggest nail gets hammered, etc. And for me, it's, if you don't go against the wind, you're not going to do something important. It's all really, everything we do that is not mundane is against the wind. And if you want to soar, <laughs> you go against the wind. And so this was the wrong advice for me. It was clear to me that it's the wrong advice. There's a cultural thing in Israel. I'm an Israeli mother. It's culturally maybe very accepted to go against the wind. Whereas maybe in a place like Sweden or something, it's not as accepted. And maybe in the U.S. is probably somewhere in between. Right. You're saying it's not only personal. It has to do with the environment. Because if everyone's going against the wind, in some ways, you're not going against the wind. You'd be going against the wind to go with the wind <laughs> if everyone's going against it, right? I think what really helped me to be in the United States is actually going to the Israeli army or to any army because you're going to this army and you're an 18 year old nothing. You're a big zero. Somebody three months older than you tells you when to leave. <laughs> and three years later, I had an office, a secretary, a car. I did inspections in helicopters. It's a whole lifespan that makes it a little generic. You're not intimidated anymore because you kind of went against the wind. You did whatever you wanted to do. You learned your lesson. Okay, now you're ready for life. <laughs> That's great. Uh, thank you, Nir Barzili, for joining us at World of Das. I follow you at, at Nir Barzili MD on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Terrific. Such a pleasure to spend time with you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com and by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.